Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today, my conversation with Trevor Cheer. Um, I contacted Trevor because um, he's kind of someone I know peripherally in my life, and I wanted to talk to someone who was an expert on um, postmodernism, like someone who would actually identify as a postmodernist. So I put it out on Facebook. He replied that he was a postmodernist. This was a long time ago. But um, when I actually contacted him to have a chat, um, he kind of revealed that he's not particularly an expert on postmodernism, that he actually is a, a political science professor now and uh, is uh, a disciple of the works of a uh, disciple. Hmm. He is uh, a, an appreciator uh, inspired by the works of uh, Hannah Arendt. Um, and there's a, a sort of a postmodern slant to her writings and thinking. So um, I decided to talk to him anyway because I thought he would be uh, fascinating because politics is another thing that I, I would like to understand. And the idea of someone who has um, postmodernism in any way as part of their thinking on politics is interesting to me. Um, so... One of the things you'll notice about this video is that um, we don't really give a great um, succinct definition of postmodernism. And I can just say that from my perspective, postmodernism is a fraught term and it's something that so many people don't directly self-identify as. Um, and I'm of two minds on it. Like some people will say that postmodernism is just, there's no such thing as truth. Um, and like, you know, there's no such thing as objective truth. And I, I think that's probably a, a big part of it. But a better definition I've heard is the idea that there's, there's no um, specific validity in grand narratives, that grand narratives like the big story of us has all kinds of remainders left over, all kinds of people screwed over in the process. And so I've kind of grown to see postmodernism as a necessary movement because as, I, as I've talked about in other podcasts, um, the, the certainty of the modern era, the certainty of religion, the certainty of scientific materialism, just the, the certainty of human beings has a toxicity to it. Um, and I do think it kind of crescendoed with modernism. I'm not saying modernism created it or anything like that, but um, so postmodernist thinkers... Um, are people who were just recognizing, we're seeing around them the, the toxic properties of the way that we take the ideas of truth, codify them, systematize them, um, associate them and lump them in with uh, governments or religious uh, faiths and all kinds of ways that we turn those into... Um, actually ways to reject the idea of new revelation, of, of new thinking, of change. And um, so we live in an interesting time because uh, it's possible that what is 
you know, it, it's possible that postmodernism has gone too far, and it's possible that we need a middle road that definitely takes um, a, a healthy dose of postmodernism and this idea that there will still be anything fresh, new, or, or, or revealed through science or through religion or through spiritual practice or whatever. So that's kind of what I'm saying and thinking when I refer to postmodernism in this conversation. I can't speak to Trevor, and I kind of didn't want to make him do... Um, it felt a little bit weird to make him do a, um, a big comprehensive definition of it because it's not the thing that he's been... Uh, nor, nor is it for me, but it's not the thing that he's been engaged in defining. Uh, so Trevor has been engaged in understanding the law, understanding um, the, you know, politics and political systems and that kind of thing, and teaching it to students. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I, I really enjoyed Trevor's perspective. Um, I thought he was loving, intelligent, um, careful, and it really made me want to, uh, to learn more about Hannah Arendt and more about politics because he seemed to have a kind of human view of politics that, uh, anyway, I, I'm talking too much about it. Um, enjoy the conversation. I hope that you do as well. Like and subscribe if you want more of this kind of content. And also, um, please do comment about how I've got postmodernism right, how I've got it wrong, anything that pops into your mind. Um, because I've really enjoyed engaging in some comments on my YouTube videos, and they honestly help me to think about these things. I don't ever attack these things. I don't bring topics because I have something I need to say about them. Uh, I do have things that I want to say and want to communicate. I have things that I think are important, but um, this podcast is really about agreement, and it's about finding the wisdom in, in every line of thinking and in every guest that I have. So not only the guests, but also the viewers. Um, so please do comment. Uh, please get in touch with me um, through the comments if you want to add to this, because that will help me f figure out who I'm going to talk to in the future. That'll maybe change the way I talk about uh, things. Um, so yeah, encourage you to do that. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Trevor Cheer. One more quick note before the interview begins. This was my last interview where I used my old video conferencing provider. Um, the video wasn't as good as I would have liked, and the audio cuts out for a word here and there. I have switched to a much more rock-solid platform, so uh, future videos will not have that issue. Thank you. Trevor Cheer, welcome to Morning Talk. Um, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me here. So um, I, I will admit when I first reached out to you, it was because of an interaction we had on Facebook a long time ago where I had just said, I was so curious about postmodernism. And I don't think that's going to be the focus of our talk today. But I, I just said on Facebook, does anyone actually identify themselves as a postmodernist? I'm sure you don't remember this. But uh, you I do. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was such a minimal thing. I was just like, because one of the things about that movement that I've thought about is that uh, it's tricky. 
Like uh, many people just don't wouldn't say they are. They might have they might be postmodernist. But you said you were, and I still I don't know if that was like if that was facetious or if that was serious. But then the reason I reached out to you was because I saw you had basically gotten your PhD, and I thought, wow, what a perfect guy to talk to me about this philosophy. If indeed you are a postmodernist, so do do you actually consider yourself to be a postmodernist? I don't want to um, attach myself to the label of uh, what I, 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 I'm certainly intellectually and personally interested in the kind of, um, in, in the postmodern critique of modernity. I think that, that how, I under, how I understand postmodernism and how I understand modernism both have a lot of strong points going for them um, for informed political and political perspectives. So, you know, to put it simply, count me as somewhere in between. <laughs> Yeah, and well, that makes sense. And I would say that I'm on the same spectrum, uh, like I'm somewhere in the middle of the spectrum because I, I like how you said the postmodernist critique because yeah. uh, my my impression of postmodernism is that it, it is a mainly a framework of critique. Um, mm -hmm. It is it, it's sort of giving yourself the or trying to give yourself the superpower of stepping aside from um, what might be the default narrative in your mind. Mm -hmm. To me, modernism contains, uh, I, I don't know that this was ever intentional, but it seems like these days, it is a very, very internalized and unquestioned um, kind of basic philosophy of kind of this, the, the, modern, the modern person, you know? Um, so I, I think postmodernism is absolutely necessary thing to have happen. I think you can, I think both things, modernism and postmodernism, can go to a hilarious degree in which they're clearly not useful and and aren't human anymore. You know. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, modernism is almost too pervasive in how uh, us agents living within capitalist societies um, function and how we think. So it's tough sometimes, I, unless you spend your life being a kind of critical academic, to kind of gain um, uh, a healthy critical scrutinizing purchase on um, the idea that us moderns are actually kind of historically constituted and we don't have to be living this way. Um, and so postmodernism as a movement helps us uh, critically assess how we, how the Enlightenment shaped us, how colonialism and imperialism shape us, how capitalism shapes us, how liberal democracy shapes us. And then um, step back and say, you know, there are other alternatives and options and like this isn't, uh, this isn't some kind of hard truth or one way of the, um, a lot gets, concealed and along the way to producing us as subjects. And so, um, so po yeah, you said postmodernism kind of had to happen. And that's an interesting way of, of uh, looking at it, that there was sort of, um, that, in, that in any kind of cultural or intellectual movement, there's going to be a, a reaction to it that, that, that questions it or. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so as a, like, I, I, that 
there's a lack of empathy often in uh, the way someone might view what they consider to be the opposite um, perspective from theirs. Like, I know there are people, uh, I mentioned Jordan Peterson in my, in my uh, email to you, who are so afraid of uh, postmodernism or so angry about it that um, they lose the, the ability to quickly say, happen like they feel like it, it's a they feel like anytime someone can be that different from them that they, yeah. they must have they must have chosen evil you know you know what i mean they, they've crossed the threshold they've and it's and it's always from you know oh they don't believe what they say they believe they're just lazy or something like that and uh like i think that the any any anything that has possessed enough people's mind the, the number of people People's minds and intellects as postmodernism or modernism came from a, a sense of felt need, I guess, from from people, and then, like anything, can be taken too far. Um, I mean, you get a lot of people nowadays who are very doctrinaire, and um, and publicly, um, kind of, it seems that they're declaring that they're way of seeing the world and their style of politics is the only true or valid way and um and <laughs> and but i mean part 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 of postmodernism, i think one of its best parts is that it recognizes that for us to live together on planet earth um given that we're all pretty unique and, and different um is that we're going to need to at least to a certain extent, relativize our own notion of what makes a good life and what's true and valid. Right. I think that's a healthy perspective. It's a difficult one. I mean, it forces us to let go of some kind of ultimate ground that's going to rubber stamp and guarantee that the way we're living is right <laughs> or true. But I think that, um, the, that although that's difficult, there's so much dangerous in um, going around thinking it's our way or the highway. We're seeing this in U.S. politics, in European politics, and all sorts of politics. Like this real polarization of camp. Um, I think part of this is a kind of fearful, um, a fear of recognizing that we as a person don't have ultimate guarantees to our ethical choices or our lifestyle choices and that there are just as valid ways to live. Um, I think of it in terms of um, maybe it's a bit gruesome, but I think of like, we should always kind of keep a little bit of an open wound. I don't know why I think of it that way, but we have this notion of strength. Um, negotiating life from a position of strength. And mm -hmm. uh, I think rather than um, rather than having the ability to turn ourselves into these towers of strength, we just turn ourselves into these uh, people who shut our weaknesses away. You know? um, mm -hmm. And and so, uh, how shall I put it? You know, our blindness based on our perspective is one of our weaknesses. And so, to be able to um, almost feel the, the pain of that, feel the incompleteness 
of of that the incompleteness of our worldview because we can't have a, a, a sufficiently broad worldview to include to include other human beings and uh, so yeah it's interesting uh, I, I'm not you know, I, I won't force you to talk about postmodernism uh, because once I once I kind of became more what you're really doing it's you're you you are a political philosopher or political scientist uh, I, I a whole new kind of set of questions and things that i thought it would be great to talk to you about in my head i mean i wrote uh my phd and book on hannah arendt who i consider to be a very important post voice in postmodernism uh, as a very sustained critique against the Enlightenment and, and modernity that led to totalitarianism, and and so I'm I'm I've always my background too. I've I've studied a lot of Kant and Hegel, big voices in in modernity, big figures in modernity, and um, and through my studying of Arendt, uh, have become interested in kind of that kind of postmodern critique of, of modernity. So, I mean, I don't, I might spend more time on kind of how postmodernism and modernism plays out in political thought, uh, rather than say, getting deep, taking deep dives into uh, the philosophy, you know, epistemology or um, other kind of branches of, of philosophy. But I mean, it's also interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. So my first question I, I wanted to ask then as a political, uh, a political scientist who is also a musician, I feel like you're someone who um, has probably thought quite a lot about the human condition. I, I consider myself, I shouldn't say I consider myself. I, I often say I'm not, which I'm sure you've heard many times from people. And I'm sure to someone with as deep a knowledge of politics as you, it's probably a pretty hilarious thing to say. Um, it depends on the use of the word political. So, what do you mean by it? Um, exactly. Uh, so, rather than answer that, I want to ask you a question first. Um, do you, how would you define a political person or politics? And then, um, do you consider it to be something? is sort of innate or do you consider it to be a system that we kind of um, add in in order to live together well i was teaching a political economy course uh, on thursday night we're recording this on a saturday morning and uh it was to political economy course through at least three definitions of what of the political and the first one has to do would frame the political as only activities that occur in institutions of government, right? Parliaments, courts, the minister's office, right? So if something's even happening in the media that doesn't count as political, right? Or in an interest group, doesn't count as political. You being an activist doesn't count as political because it's not a government institution. I think that's too limited a view of what political is. All right. Um, another definition, uh, which I'm more uh, I, I like better, is uh, equates the political to um, activities 
occurring in the public sphere um, rather than the private sphere. Although that's a difficult division to define what's public, what's private, this changes at certain times in certain places. It's, it, it means different things. But the public basically has to do with you as a private person, but um, that imply others, that uh, are collective interests, things like security, things like safe road, health care, which some people want to define as a private interest rather than a public interest. So I'd see a political person as someone who thinks about and acts on um, their opinion, their perspective about um, collective about how um, collective uh, interests, collective wants, collective needs ought to be met um, within their society. In deliberation with other citizens about how uh, we want to live together as a community. And so that can mean getting really involved in more formal political institutions and activities like running for office in an election, or it can be less formally institutionalized uh, examples of political activity like um, having conversations uh, with people who aren't just your family members about um, the policies, um, regulations, policies, budgets that are that are um, that are being negotiated uh, at any kind of level of, of government. Yeah. So okay. That's that's an already a long answer. <laughs> so oh, no, that's good. I wanted one of the reasons I want to do these kinds of conversations is that people just don't get a chance to give a slightly longer answer often. Uh, and I think YouTube and podcasts have have put these longer answers into the into the public space that you're talking about, which I I think is. So yeah, public space is largely di digital space now and virtual space now, and that has all kinds of potential, and it has all kinds of weird um, ex ex external uh, limitations to it as well. But yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, I wanted to. This is this is almost me uh, trying to exercise the demons of of disconnection that that take place that that come into your mind and 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 your life through technology so it's uh it's it's really great to to talk to people and, and get informed opinions so when so yeah um the definitions of politics and the and the word political that you gave i think the the one you know politics is what happens in the offices of prime ministers and elected officials and that kind of thing um that's the one that feels like a terribly gap bridge you know um yes. and uh and we really get our bullet our silver bullet is our vote you know and you, you send that towards the target you think would be good um mm. and then you sit back and and see what happens so uh, like yeah. uh what i'm not going to do is kind of get you to um prescription for politics and uh, but I, I am interested in um, collective versus the individual, like you said. Um, 
because it seems as though the collective versus the individual is at the, the heart of the political discussion uh, nowadays. Like it would sort of, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to present um, a simplistic view of, of either side, but it seems like uh, one of the values of the conservative right is that individual rights and freedoms, uh, individual ability to protect themselves, um, a private ownership and all of that. And then on the, on the left, uh, you know, uh, the further you get, the more it's like a, a, maybe a collective, um, we're all in this together. Uh, we, we should share because there's enough for everyone. And I guess just like modernism and postmodernism, we, we definitely have to live in the middle ground. Um, and so uh, I'm not sure if there's a question here exactly, but um, I, I like what you're saying, and I see a corollary between um, between our need for self determination and our need for collective, uh, you know, just to be a part of a collective. Um, and this is one of the kind of perennial challenges of. Uh, politics is trying to find the middle ground between um, the freedom for the individual to set and then pursue their own goals in relation to their own conception of the good life and um, fulfilling duties that they owe the community or finding harmony uh, among their community, feeling at home in the world Or that they do live in a shared world with others um, and that they do owe certain things to other members of their community. That, um, and this is, this was a, a, a kind of dichotomy um, set up uh, by Aristotle in ancient Greece, by, um, by Rousseau and Hegel in modern times. And it's still um, one of the, main ways that we see the kind of perennial problems or challenges of political challenges that human beings face. Um, absolutely. I, I wonder if you... Um, and different political parties and perspectives have different answers to that problem. Um, I, I wonder if the... Uh, maybe you can speak to this. Issue with um, politics and with the polarization of politics has to do yeah. with um, with how much or how how we've lost some of the ways that that we were that maybe we used to be together physically together um, in the world. Some of the meeting spaces that were that were actually uh, separate from politics. Um, I wonder if you. I wonder if you have any insights into how people can be together or like if, if people are required to be at a political rally to be that's problematic. Right. Well, they're already among people who sort of share the same doxa, the same opinion as them. So there's not any reaching out to the, to the other side yet, political rally. Right. So have you in your, 
in your investigations of sort of political history, what have been the best um, institutions and 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 ways like meeting places for people to you know, yeah. just live life together so that they can yeah. demonize? Yeah, uh, bowling. <laughs> and I say that tongue in cheek because think of the movie Bowling for Columbine. Michael. Uh, 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 this is Michael Moore. Michael Moore, thank you. Um, Michael Moore didn't choose bowling arbitrarily. It's because there's an old political scientist, uh, Putnam, um, who talks uh, about bowling as an example of how uh, Americans used to, from all political stripes, used to get together and spend time with one another and build social capital. And um, he saw the opportunities for this meeting together in sort of not really political spaces per se, not formal institutions of politics, it's not parliament, but these um, kind of social spaces um, where people can more or less casually um, get to know each other, see each other, share their opinions in their community and feel a kind of connection and belonging with one another, even though they different perspectives, different opinions about shared events um, within their community. And this is, this is the, like the, the fact that we spend more time atomized in our, at our work desks and in our private homes and that we're only connected digitally and through our handheld devices, yeah. we'll call them. This is part of the problem, I think. I mean, there's so much in the internet for connecting people digitally that otherwise would never get to meet right because of how huge the world is right so in some way internet and digital media has brought these connections like they're, they're more possible over long distances and that's that's great yeah but it also seems that people who are pretty close to one another spatially in the same community don't tend to meet up together in, in as much in physical space and um I, I might call me old fashioned, but I think that's important for people of different interests and different political persuasions to, to still realize that it's good they be able to live together constructively, ethically, with respect and be neighbors. Yeah, that maybe it's old fashioned, but I think it's I think it's a very, very uh, deep human, uh, human need. Um, yeah, it's also easier to vilify and vilify people that you don't agree with politically if you're never meeting with them face to face. One of the things, no, if you need to meet with them face to face, I think it's less likely that people will um, kind of hide behind their computer screen or their Facebook avatar and say, "I, you know," and and I'm not gonna, I'm not uh, <laughs> that, but but essentially vilify their political opponent. Something I would add in and see what your impression is, because I, I fully agree, like the disconnection thing. Um, it's one of the reasons I like to do these things face to face, even, yeah. though, uh, even though there's technical limitations and things like that. Um, yeah. but, uh, so I'll bounce something off of you and see if you agree or disagree. Um, what happens when the public space moved to Facebook, largely that wasn't necessarily um in my view it, it didn't have to be a negative thing but then uh the the fact that the algorithms began to really curate what you saw based on your own activity 
Um, and, and so we, this is something that's been discussed a lot, but um, it, it cur they curate yeah. what you see based on your own activity. It kind of yeah. makes me feel like part of that, that phenomena actually added in uh, a little subcurrent of self-hatred um, mm -hmm. because everyone from all walks of life acknowledge the negative aspect of that technology and we're still there and we still fall prey to it you know what i mean so uh and and actually that that ties into um the the hatred of uh capitalism uh i believe that capitalism has algorithms and, and by the way I, I should say i'm not i'm not specifically anti-capitalism but um that what happens in capitalism is that some some kind of non-digital algorithms get um, in, into things because you know what's done in business or what's done in industry reflects um, what where people actually put their money, where individuals put their money, and so I feel like the critique of of capitalism sometimes contains a bit of self-loathing as well because it's we don't like the fact that, mm -hmm. that when given purchasing freedom we don't make the choices that make organic foods cheap we don't make the choices that don't pollute the world you know what i mean like uh, uh, so yeah. and then and then when and and that that we can feel in that situation, um, we don't like that. So we can turn it into a powerful um, project out, a powerful evil onto others. Uh, th does that make any sense? Does that resonate with you or, or does it? Yes. Another thing that, um, that I think I find frustrating being an agent within capitalism, and I don't think I'm alone, is that... Um, I catch myself buying things that I don't want, <laughs> that I certainly don't need, but that I probably don't even really want, <laughs> but that I'm kind of, capitalism and the products out there, they're not actually just satisfying needs, they're creating wants because companies have figured out that they can sell a product if their advertising is good enough to create that want. This isn't a new idea. I mean, Karl Marx was pretty good, a uh, pretty good theorizer of showing how you know, capitalism creates creates false false wants. Um, it it has to it has to when it grows to a certain point. You know what I mean? Like, like if there was a sort of capitalist um, rural village where all of the you know this is just my I'm just going off the top of my head, but you know, mm. if, if all of the needs were being provided by a person, you know, and maybe, you know, a, a person who's new to the job market might say, well, what are the actual needs of the community or what do people like when it's small? I feel like it, it, you know, it could maybe a good way to provide needs, but if it gets big enough, there's no way it can't, uh, start, um, creating needs for people and then fulfilling them unless we on some spiritual level um value not that 
less. Yeah, maybe that's. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, the way the system's set up, which is this, pro the, the profit motive, um, and the reinvestment of of surplus, uh, enough. I mean, the, one of the kind of principles of capitalism is a sort of imperative to grow the economy more, to always increase. GDP and so um, built into it is this is this um, hubris <laughs> that that never enough that we're constantly searching for new new markets. Um, right, and that oh sorry. Yeah, I mean that's one of the interesting things that that Arendt um, writes about. Pretty intelligently in her class from '58 is. Um, so I'm sorry. Can you say one more time your audio? Card? Yeah, Arendt writes about this phenomenon in her 1958 book, The Human Condition, which a lot of people have have read, and it's kind of making a little bit of a comeback the last 10 years or so. Um, in the chapter that she describes as the rise of the social, um, she has some interesting things to say about capitalism. I won't get into too many details about it now. I don't want to get us all, you know, too much in the week. But she she shows the kind of parallel between um, the principles of capitalism um, and the guiding principles of um, the metabolism of nature. Like we all, all she, once we see society in terms of a nation and treat it like a household whose main is to um, provide material needs and then come up with a surplus. Um, once we conceive the nation as in terms of in terms that you would uh, usually reserve for a family, then um, just as in a just as in a biological family there's this imperative to produce and reproduce and reproduce and um when we apply this principle to society as a whole uh we adopt this kind of um perspective that uh there's there's not any kind of rational limit to how much wealth ought to be accumulated for a given society a national economy um, and we begin to produce not to um, kind of fulfill our actual needs um, and to to create a world where we feel at home um, but rather we just produce to consume we produce to consume that's where we get this this kind of um, mass consumption and disposable society from right. we need to be able to dispose these things dispose things and make them cheaply in order to produce more to consume more um, as though it's like this uh, biological thing that is growing just like a, an animal or a plant or anyway I'm kind of glossing on it and <laughs> uh, it's it's very interesting um, so what what comes to my mind when you say this and you, we talk about it needs to grow if that like you know w when you create this produce to you know produce to consume um 
it, it has the feeling of a you know a runaway train kind of a thing. Yeah. And, and the limiter on that, like the only fail safe or 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 whatever, um, it seems to be in my mind yeah. to create. Um, or not to create, but to actually uh, inspire people to value each other and value the future um, in a way that is is spiritual in mind, you know, in a way that it doesn't feel like a government can can supply, if that makes any sense. Um, sure. The, the actual. Important will fail safe uh, against um, well any political system going going awry is is something on the level of spirit um, uh, so maybe respond to that do you have a, a, a thought answer sure uh, well in liberal democratic societies that are fashioned around this, I think important separation of church and state. One of the constitutional imperatives is that the state get, doesn't get involved too much in spirit, doesn't get too much in, um, doesn't get involved in, in sanctioning one religion, all right? Like religious freedom is a very important right to modern liberal democratic societies. So in that respect, our government, governing institutions um, need to leave spiritual development uh, and formation of the citizens almost to the private sphere or to the social sphere um, at the same time it's governments that that uh, design public curriculum so i'm not talking about prescribing religion but just teaching our kids good ethical values if you mean spirit in that sense then yeah our states are still very very much involved in in um it's in teaching spirit, teaching virtues. Uh, and it's a matter now of kind of having a, dis a tough discussion as a community, which virtues do we want to teach right. yeah. children in public school systems? Yeah, how extreme or how far into the ethical and moral world does the um, educational system go? And um, yeah, I mean, in Ontario, we're trying to, the public sex ed system is trying to teach about consent. And um, our premier right now is trying to roll back that um, that sex ed curriculum. I mean, he said he'd roll it back, and essentially they passed legislation just saying that students, families can opt out of sex ed education. But, you know, to teach consent, that seems like a virtue you'd, you'd be teaching your your children and it's a very sticky conversation about what kind of yeah. virtues or ethics the state is going sorry you cut out for a second sorry which yeah ethical questions the state's going to teach about the school system right. ones are going to be left to the private households to kind of dis i mean and it doesn't get more intimate like i'm not gonna you know i'm not going to um to avoid stating political views as much as possible um so i, I don't mean to dodge the consent thing at all but it, it, just right. to say there there is nothing more intimate than, than sexual relations and sexual politics and uh and and so yeah that really hits at, at the core of people um i wonder if 
if there's any value in, um, uh, how would I put it? Um, so the separation of church and state is, you know, is very important. Um, I believe it is. And I wonder if, if maybe uh, in this time, um, if there's a way to encourage sort of not non-religious, but like uh, some kind of moral uh, institutions. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very difficult because I feel like by the time it gets to um, over ethics and morals in, in, the, in the public sphere, in the educational system, it feels like it's, you know, especially because it's our children, it feels like it's too late to have a nuanced conversation or, or something like that. So I, I guess uh, I'm, I'm yearning for, see, I came up in a, in a church background and I have seen firsthand the, the pitfalls and the echo chambers that can happen. And I've also seen firsthand the, the community focus and the, um, you know, the real help uh, for fellow man that can happen. It, the, the, the breadth of things that can happen through these non-governmental uh, moral institutions. Yeah. You know, the gap is unbelievably wide because you'd have to throw in, you know, white supremacy groups into that same category, or you'd have to throw in, like, because they're, they're non-governmental groups of, of organized people working with some kind of uh are you talking about like faith faith groups in part like religious groups or just any kind of community group as an ethical stance i'm speaking of community groups with an ethical stance but with the um with the caveat that my experience growing up was in a faith based group um so i guess um i guess i kind of wonder if um to some of the the polarization and and maybe the 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 way that some of these conversations about curriculum and that kind of thing could be improved is something that is not within the power of government to do but it's it's in it's in as many of the cultural and community based groups as possible uh, attempting to um politicize themselves as much as you know, to not align to not to not openly and overtly align themselves with specific political parties and to not screen their you know to not screen their membership by those yeah. means or anything even socially but that's i mean th that's one of the reasons i end up saying i'm not political is because i think if you look at people entering the arena what you want is people entering that arena who um love themselves, love others, and, and really want to live together. And it, it yeah. seems to me like a lot of the institutions, churches included, um, creating uh, politically, um, you know, ideologues, uh, strict and harsh ideologues who are entering yeah. the political arena with their boxing gloves on. Yeah, it's very tribal. Tribalism is one of the terms you hear nowadays that... Uh... In, in the sense of of people kind of staying within their own divided groups and 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 um, 
as a, treating life and like a, like a like a team sport, and they can't wear two jerseys <laughs> at once. Um, one of the other th I, one of the other things that I, I agree with you, but one of the other things that I think um, these groups as well as the media um, could vocalize a bit stronger is just that that we need to recognize ethical limits to our actions for so long. This harkens back to what one of the principles of modernity, modernity speaking of modernity, um, modernity has this principle where the old Greek sense of hubris, the old Greek sense of, of um, it, it's a bad thing if you, if you kind of buy limits you're committing hubris if you bypass natural limits to the to, to human action um, if you if you bypass or break through rational limits to human action there's going to be negative things that occur modernity kind of says you know what forget you Greeks the modern modern agent is all about exploding those so-called natural limits you know um, for, Establishing new frontiers, new values, even, and uh, capitalism's imperialism—it's it's all tied into that notion of the modern man being a kind of exploder of limits. Um, and I and you know, with the climate crisis, with huge economic disparity, um, and all sorts of other social problems, I think that just the discourse of limits, rational limits to our um, rational limits to our fossil fuel mind than it tends to be in everyday kind of media discourse, political discourse. Um, and I think that this is something that the right and the left, they, they have in common, a kind of respect for for limits, but they're, they're having trouble speaking to each other. They have kind of more in common than they, than they think. I agree, actually. Um, and it, it's interesting that, yeah, I, I like the, I like the um, thing you're saying. It me like there's always lip service to humility, um, but actually somehow baking humility in to large systems becomes very difficult because it's, you know, it's, it's very strange when like say in the U S we want people to be, uh, you know, humble. And yet we have individuals at the height of power. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like, I don't, I don't know if that ties in. The sound just cut out for the word power. Okay. Um, sorry. You have individuals at the height power. Individuals, yeah, yeah. And that that is. I feel like there's always going to be in there. I mean, this is just. I'm just speaking off the cuff. I I actually don't know what my politics are at this point in my life. I'm at this. I'm at this point of of kind of radical openness um, where I really want to understand things rather than uh, form hard. Uh, Opinions, but yeah, to have an it, to say that we all need to be humble, then to exalt, uh, you know, a very small number of people up at the heights of power over us, 
is a is a mixed message. It's just something that kind of came into my mind as you were talking. Yeah. A response to that. Um. Not that's okay. You think that there's a between being humble and not wanting to commit hubris and to recognize limits, and that that a tension between that and the notion that that there are that we kind of idolize an elite set of individuals that have a lot of political power what you're saying because reward like we reward hubris reward hubris oh yeah yeah that's, I guess that's the way to phrase it sorry i'm it's not a well-formed thought but uh, that was that was just kind of what came to my mind when, when yeah. you were talking. Um, well, I think that um, that that we can that we can um, recognize limits and still reward merit and and wisdom in sort of recognizing the the authority to take up pretty important public like. I think that um, we can still recognize limits and, and uh, make rational, good ethical decisions and still uh, elect people to public offices where they're going to have, as an individual, a lot of power. Um, but I, I think that um, by recognizing that we need to have limits as a community and that they should be based on rational deliberation, um, that we would choose these individuals that are going to have a lot of political power based on their exhibiting that they can understand these limits and be responsible as as leaders and that we're not just electing people that we find fascinating because they're celebrities or because they're kind of kind of um um that they that that they that they don't recognize limits i mean i think trump's popular in a way because he doesn't he doesn't give two hoots about certain limits well, what comes to my mind as you're saying that is kind of the way that maybe the Trump phenomenon and various things in modern times have flipped the script. Because yeah. if I were to hear you talk about limits like that, mm -hmm. personal limits and all of that. Yeah, spending limits. Uh, if, if, if I were to hear you talk about that without specific reference to Trump, I would say that it almost sounded conservative. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I agree. It's small C conservative in terms of like conserve the world that we're trying to live in, <laughs> conserve the environment, um, conserve the future for our kids. Uh, but can the conser conservative parties, Republican parties, have principles and individuals that are not small C conservative at all? They lead to very. Um, kind of very individualist, very liberal attitudes, depending on the topic, on the rank that you're focusing on, um, depending on the, you know. Yeah. That's yeah. why I think, I think right and left, uh, they tend to cloud and confuse debates more than be helpful sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I hope you don't take, uh, oh, sorry, you're, you cut out. Did I interrupt you? No. Okay. I hope you don't take me saying that you were sounding conservative as a, as a negative thing. No, no, no. I have a, uh, you know, 
a, a suspicion that conservative and liberal are, are more like personality types that will always exist. Um, and that it, it's, it's quite possible that people who are flag or in, with a conservative um, official name aren't, yeah. aren't being conservative in a human way. Being conservative in the, in being true to the conservative personality type of uh, wanting to protect uh, what we have, protect what's working, you know, yeah. um, which, which is a, is a good thing. You know, I see the liberal conservative divide as being something that can be so healthy with, with certain people looking to the future, certain people protecting the present and, and a dialogue, you know, between the two. And, and so I think you're absolutely right when you say that conservatives and liberals don't have as, as much, aren't as different as they, as, as they might think. Well, those are big, two very broad categories. They're large tent, uh, you, you know, in, in Canada and the United States, there are parties attached with those political camps. And these are huge brokerage parties that try to bring together voters with, with quite different opinions within those different camps. And so, um, you know, I think when you ask someone, are you looking to take another step and ask them like, on what level are you talking about the economic question of how much the government should intervene in the economy? fiscally or we talk about social issues and even then um which social issues right. that are say they really believe in individual right choice like the right to bear arms right um the right to pray in school right but then they won't say the right to uh to access to abortion so you can't just say that it's about individual rights, it depends on the question. And I think that when we just kind of divide up into these camps and and say, we think like a conservative or we think like a liberal, it's it doesn't take the kind of time or care to pass out how members from these two different camps actually choose in the particular expression of how individual um, rights play. Uh, it, it seems to me, yeah, that maybe what I'm hearing uh, from you is that we've replaced what could be um, personal personality types that, um, that are a framework for, for action in the world or a framework even for wisdom and discernment in the world have been replaced with, with dogmas, have been replaced with, uh, yeah. with strict ideologies. Um, Actually, if, if I were to bring it full circle, um, uh, I would I would maybe throw in there that postmodernism <laughs> um, mm -hmm. is when it's um, when it's characterized in a healthy way or when it's lived out in a healthy way is is yeah. merely the um, the acknowledgement that you might be a part of a of a dogma or a or a a grand narrative that has possessed you. Yeah, in a and that it's gone too far. That you know that that you can that even even just to acknowledge that there might be another story or another way to read, um, another way to read things, or or that other people's experience and other people's stories that they feel they're in are really where are really where they're at. And 
that, that might be that you know that little that little bit of postmodernism uh, for everybody um, could be uh, um, right. It could be a healthy healthy thing. Um, yeah, I think that's well put. And another aspect of postmodernism, I think that's healthy, is that um, we're not like our identity, who we are, is not determined by some essential personality or by one essential or most important affiliation to one one but our identity is fragmented and our identity is constructed by what we say and what we do in our changing situation across our whole life biography right. it's not done until we are done right. and that's a lot of pressure off of us then if we see identity this way from kind of figuring out exactly what camp we're gonna right embrace We're not so or funny. embrace us and we don't need to kind of expect particular behaviors from others or stereotype others because we think that we can kind of figure out who they are just by looking at them um yeah it's something that's one of the nice things about postmodern it's kind of like um deconstructing this notion of an essentialist identity and and I and I agree I, I agree with you uh, to put a couple of my cards on the table. Um, I guess I, I I couldn't call myself a social constructionist, and I, I know I don't know what I, you know what you feel about that, but um, I I very much value the postmodern um, idea that um, we don't have complete control over uh, over who we are and how we are, you know and. Um, and that acknowledging that is actually the only way to uh, begin to have a little bit of, um, you know, if we're composing the symphony of our life or whatever, it, you know, acknowledging that some of that symphony is is has been written, you know, uh, by someone else or by other things, is paradoxically the only way that we can maybe take up a pen and start to mm. put some notes in there, right? Uh, it, like, it, it it's not. I don't necessarily think there's no inherent self, but I think that it, that we we, un, we need to see ourselves as uncovering ourselves and discovering ourselves, but also being defined. Uh, you know, like it's it's a very dynamic thing. That yeah, you're right. It never ends. It never ends. And one of the things that I've noticed ideologies tend to do and and dogmas tend to do is tell you um, you are free in your mind. You have total control over yourself. But here's the conclusion you must reach. <laughs> However you want to get there, that's your thing. So then all of life kind of just becomes this way of almost uh, aesthetically framing what we feel we have to believe. Um, rather than um, than realizing that some of it, you know, is dictated was dictated to us and some of it needs to be questioned. I don't think we'll have the best conservatives possible or the best liberals possible, the best Marxists possible, uh, as long as we don't have that ability to question um, not just the conclusions we think we want to make and to revise the revise our final goal, but also to revise our methods, revise our means as we go along. Yeah. And so that can obviously be very difficult from a a political standpoint, um, because we're not. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like uh, politics is is not set up for evolution, uh, but maybe it is. 
Um, I'm, I'm ranting now. I apologize. I, I went off there. Well, no, I don't mean, yeah, in terms of your rant, you say a lot of intelligent things there, I think. Um, I, to respond to a couple of them, um, I don't think that uh, recognizing that the self is fragmentary and that, um, that, that, that that should forego a sense of individual responsibility for our actions. I didn't think Even if we don't have ultimate control over who we are, um, we're still we still need to take responsibility for for how we act. You know, it's still going to be our actions, our choices are still going to be attached to us. Um, and um, another thing I'll I'll respond to is that you said you don't think politics are kind of set up for for evolution. Um, what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, it it was a little bit off the cuff. I was just thinking. Um, I guess I guess what I mean is like I don't see I don't see a lot of um, uh, hmm, how would I put it? Almost like well, I don't see a lot of evolution in politics when when things swing uh, in when things swing back and forth so we get you know an ndp government in alberta um, and they don't have time right know, they don't have time to stretch out they're they, yeah. you know and and do things at, at an actual at at the pace of of human change or human growth like which is a fairly slow thing right it's like mm -hmm. And then conservatives get in and prove yourself, you know, and then we swing back and forth. It seems very yeah. e evolutionary, you know, um, like, right. like if you look at it from real evolution or survival of the fittest, if there is a super predator um, over, uh, you know, one animal that's a super predator over another animal, then that there's not going to be an ecosystem. You know, if those are the two constituents, there's not going to be an ecosystem. There's going to be um, uh, wiping out of of species. You know, so politics almost seems instead of instead of evolving, where both have their methods. You know, it seems like there's a winner and then another winner and then another winner. I like. Does this make sense? Maybe I'll let you respond and see if you have something more cogent to say than what I'm ranting about. Well, what I'm taking from what you're saying is is sort of a function of our electoral system that uh, we have these elections every four or five years and to try to make policy changes, but also make changes that are going to set them up to win the next election. And that's, uh, that's a problem with our democracy and um, why some parties win elections and lose elections. It's, it's not always because they don't make good policies. <laughs> sometimes it is, sometimes it's not though. And so, you know, one of the arguments against democracy, that, uh, it might be useful to have sort of an aristocratic type regime where you have kind of the wisest policymakers um, who don't need to get elected uh, in there deliberating uh, to try to make the most progressive policy changes possible, you know, possible. But of course, there's all sorts of problems with that, and that's yeah, that the public doesn't have 
proper channels by which to feed that delivery, partake in that delivery. So it's imperfect. And it would be very difficult for them to properly value opposing voices, you know. Uh, um, another thing I'll say about uh, politics isn't evolutionary. One of the things about modern, modern postmodernism, as you know, is that it throws out this notion that we're all evolving or progressing to one end state. Right. The end of history. Um, however, I don't think that postmodernism is trying to throw out the window that we can make rational decisions that make improvements. And I want to stress life better for people without believing um, in a, a kind of teleological, progressive, linear uh, notion of history that only has one possible course. Um, and I think that's one of, that's, I don't, we can't throw responsibility away to make good decisions that are going to positively affect everyone involved and positively affect the world that we're trying to leave behind. Right. Well, I certainly agree that, yeah, like a, a healthy postmodernism would still involve um, uh, responsibility for our actions and, 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 and rational decision-making. Um, I think that uh, the danger for modernism or, or postmodernism is just in, in, uh, limiting our um in, in limiting our ability to question yeah and one of the challenges is that when you have so many different political opinions political voices it's it it's it's difficult to sift through all those fairly and to come up with the procedure that 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 rationally determines what's the best option what's the best policy option what's the best decision you know this is kind of the purview of someone like a Habermas. <laughs> and um, I think that that's one of the reasons that some people get, get, that's uh, one of the reasons why you have a kind of reaction sometimes to, uh, to immigration, right? What it is, is it's people finding it very, very difficult to come to terms with this challenge of incorporating all sorts of different perspectives and outlooks um, when figuring out how to make positive changes for their community. Right? That's, that's one of the reasons. Is that it's just very, very difficult to consider all different sorts of ethical. Um, and I want to make it clear, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of um, immigration in, in my community. In Canada, I think that uh, it's just a question of human rights as well. Uh, you know the the relatively free mobility of human beings across borders, um, but also I think that having different perspectives very healthy for community debate. It doesn't make it any easier though that that challenge of figuring out a fair way to listen to all perspectives and then figuring out a procedure by which the best policy um, is produced. It's that's tough. That's politics. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me like you're, um, I must uh, applaud your, you know, the, the fact that you've kind of devoted your life and your career to uh, getting students to think these things through. Um, Thanks. 
I don't pretend to have any answers, but I like thinking about the problems a lot. No, that's, challenging. that's good. I mean, I mean, solutions crowd, you know, crowdsourced solutions based on more and more people uh, thinking deeply rather than thinking, uh, you know, tribally or thinking, um, you, you know, in, in a limited dogmatic way, more and more people. So uh, doing that is the way forward. So um, uh, my hat's off to you. I've, I've really appreciated this conversation. Um, a lot of insights uh, from you, and I hope I didn't uh, rant too much. The things that, oh, you, things that you say were stimulating <laughs> thoughts in my head. Um, Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thanks for having me as part of uh, this podcast, and um, I look forward to hearing more of these talks. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, th and uh, I, I really appreciate it, and it's it's the pleasure is all mine. So. Um, I guess now I'll I'll stop the recording and uh, and I will uh, be in touch in the future.